I'm Jake Miller from the Educational Duct Tape Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect those of others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Today I'm going to start a multi-part series where I'm focused on, if you've listened to me long enough, you know that I'm a big believer that anybody who works with kids around history needs to, at some point, give them the opportunity to learn about primary versus secondary sources and then get them in touch with primary source information so that they can use that to help them, whether it's make decisions about things, understand the past, use it to understand where we're going or decisions that people made, however, but to get a better feel for this world that we live in and where we came from. And with that, today I'm talking with David Mileto. You're going to recognize that name because he's my favorite uncle. And he's also an artist. And he also was a child in the 50s, teenager in the 60s. And all of this is building up into other stuff that happens in the 70s and 80s. And we're going to talk a little bit about being an Italian-American in Chicago, as well as uh, just growing up at that time frame. So lots to hear, lots to talk about, lots to think about. I'll bet it'll make you think about your own family tree. And I'll bet it'll make you think about those same time periods. And keep in the back of your mind, how could you use this interview with your students. Hmm? Very cool. Part one with David Mileto. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. David Mileto is an artist. He has amazing talent for bringing ideas to life. He also is one of my favorite uncles. That's right, you'll recognize the last names are similar. He has an incredible sense of humor. He is an amazing cook who makes his own pasta, and I swear I can sense when he's cooking. Awesome aromas. And I always remember him having an interesting comment or two that would make me think. You know, for example, like in the 80s when he asked me which of my music groups I think will still be relevant in 20 years. Not so sure my answers were right on the money or not. <laughs> Although some of them are starting to find comebacks now. <laughs> the, uh, um, or him practicing his spoken Italian and talking about family history. You've never lived until you've experienced him driving through the toll booths of Chicago. <laughs> that is a whole nother thing and kind of taking your life in your hands there. He also is an avid baseball and White Sox fan. This interview is focused on David as a primary source of information. He lived through some amazing aspects of our country. This will be a multi-part show. In the first episode, we will share some family history and then talk about being a child in the 50s and early 60s. As a classroom teacher, my hope is that you will be able to use some of his thoughts and comments about life in the past as a way of getting your students to hear the thoughts of someone who was there. And where he was was in the Chicagoland area in the 50s and 60s. By the way, the journey will also take us to Texas, Florida, maybe Las Vegas, Wisconsin, and Italy. Part two and three. <laughs> he thought I was going to forget Wisconsin. So <laughs> Part two and three will bring us through the turbulent teenage years and into the late 60s and then into some events in later years of his life will be the part three down the road. So remember, David is an artist, and at the end of each episode, we will journey into some of his current work 
and a special request for assistance with a project that he's trying to take to the next level and complete. So with that being said, David, thanks for joining me today and say hi to everybody. My pleasure. Good afternoon. Well, I'm glad you're here and it's going to be awesome. Uh, we got a lot of stuff we're going to talk about here. So I appreciate you taking some time uh, to talk with me here. So let's start with this. You're my uncle, my dad's brother. Your parents were my grandparents. You were their youngest child. Let's start by talking about them. Let's give a little background. They were both born in Italy and brought here by their parents, right? Yeah. Um, my mother was born in the region of Marche in Senegalia, um, which is just a little north of Ancona. My father in 1906. My father was born in 1904 in the region of Calabria in uh, Catanzaro. And my father came over sooner um, with his dad. Um, my mother came to the United States when she was six years old. Very cool. Do you know, did they come through Ellis Island? No, I actually went to look and it was, it was funny. I, I, I went to the Ellis Island website to see if I could find them. And I couldn't. And I came back and I saw my mom and I said, where did you come? Didn't you come in, in through New York? And she went, no, we came in out of Boston. I said, that's why you're not there. Okay. <laughs> but no, they came out. I think they came in through Boston. Very cool. Now, and uh, now your great, your great grandfather, is that correct? My, your grandfather. No, your grandfather. My grandfather. Um, now he worked for the railroad, right? Or is that what he did? My, my dad's, my dad's dad. Yeah. Yes. From what I was told, I, I barely knew him. He was, my grandfather on my father's side, I mainly remember his funeral. I've been going to funerals since I was seven. Yeah. <laughs> his, his was the first. But from what I was told by my brother, um, yeah, he had something to do with the rail. Very cool. So uh, do you, so do you, you actually met him, though, besides the funeral? <laughs> no. No, you did if, if, if I did, I don't remember it. Gotcha. I, I may have. I know that from photographs I have seen of him. He was a big man, which is interesting because my father was not. My dad was only maybe I think like five eight, five nine, and this and my grand his father was well over six foot. He was a big man. That's funny. That's, that's how my dad described him. <laughs> he had um, he said he was a big man. He said he's like barrel chested and very cool. Yeah, he was a big guy. So. Made wine his whole life until it finally killed him. His doctors told him he had diabetes, and his doctor said, "You're going to have to stop." Oh wow! And, and he said, <laughs> "Forget that noise." In fact, I have vinegar. I still have vinegar from wines he made. Oh wow! Wow. Turn. Modern day wines won't turn. What? Tell me what that means, because I'm not sure what I know. The wine. The wine will will turn into vinegar. Oh wow! Old, old wines. You know, back when people made wines, that wine will turn to vinegar. Wines that you go to the store and buy with the labels and the whole deal and spend a gazillion dollars for, they won't. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that's it. You'll have to get somebody smarter than me on wine. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's cool. So that's so you have some of that. Uh... Yeah, it's upstairs. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Nice. I have the original jug that it was in. Oh, that's very cool. Very cool. Yeah. So. So, in you know, talking a little bit about uh, your parents, the uh, do you have a fair, favorite memory of them? It was interesting when I when I saw that, I, I thought about that, and and no, I, I okay. First off, 
questions of favorite this, favorite that, I can find kind of ridiculous. Oh, come on. <laughs> well, in that, I, I don't know how I look at somebody and say favorite this right. when, when I'm looking at this human being. I got you. Um, when, when I, when I think about my parents, um, I am more struck by the totality of them, I think, in that the likes of the people that came out of the era of the 20s and the 30s, we will never see the likes of again. And I think that's really sad. They had a dimension to them. They had a dynamic to them that I have not seen in any generation after theirs. And I somewhat think it had to do with what they came out of, um, the way they had to interact with all sorts of different peoples. Um, one of the things that I found fascinating with my dad was the way he could walk into a new environment where he knew no one. And by the time he left, he knew everybody. Example, when I used to have to take my dad to the doctors or take him out to run errands or whatever, where he, like when I would take him to see his sister or to see his brother, um, the one thing I always had to know was where to go eat lunch. You didn't just come home. You had to go, you had to go out and eat lunch. You love going out to eat lunch. So we were in this one Northern suburb of Chicago called Highwood, which is pretty well known for its restaurants. And there was, we were driving by this one that had recently opened and it was French. And I looked at my, and I was thinking, my dad, French, nah, not really. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> So we went in, he had on his little bowling jacket. He always wore hats. He had his hat on. And by the time he left, he and the owner got to be really good friends to where we went back to that restaurant a lot. Um, and that was just part of the way that generation seemed to know how to deal with people. Um, it's interesting that I heard you mentioned my dad's father but my mother's father is I think in some ways a, a, a little sadder story um, because this was a man I've been to where my mother was born I've been in her house and my immediate thought was why in God's name did you want to leave this place <laughs> and and I even got in that conversation at a, on a Sunday dinner um, my aunt and her son were here and we were talking and I brought that up because I had always heard how sad her father was when he left Italy. He was a master chef. Um, my mother learned how to cook from him. Um, and I was told that when he came here, it was just sort of like everything was kind of lost. For him and so it was it was interesting um, hearing stories about her father and the way it and how that may have affected them but in regards to, to, to favorite moments or just just the dynamic of them 
Um, I think one of the reasons why I've always been attracted to very beautiful, intelligent women is because of my mother, my sister, and my mother's sisters. We were dealing with, with people who were very strong, dynamic folks. Awesome. And, you know, you could see it in my dad's. When, when I look at what my mother and father had to endure, what they came out of is, is extraordinary. I mean, what? Doctor came to my mom four times, five times, and said, Mrs. Mileto, your husband is not going to live. And he was wrong. I mean, he got it right the last time, but right. he was wrong the other time. My father was framed to where he not only couldn't get a job, he couldn't get anything. Everything was stripped from him. My, my brother and sister, I was not alive. I got to miss all this good stuff. My, my brother and sister were taken to school in a police car. My mother had to essentially raise those children on her own because my father was struggling to, fight to get his name back. Um, I heard they had a bodyguard in the house. Um, and so when you look at what these people went through and endured um, and grew from it is just sort of amazing. That's why I said a favorite moment I ain't got. Um, I, I look at their overall story when my father was dying and I looked at the way he dealt with death of the fact that he knew that he was dying, looked at the way he handled that dynamic. I probably learned more from him in those eight months than I learned in, in my entire life. Just watching the way he handled the fact that he knew his life was coming to an end. Wow. They, uh, that's, that's awesome. I, you know, and it's, as his grandson, there's some things and, and, uh, um, and your mom's, you know, hanging out with them, it's funny because um, I have, I got to know her more uh, when she got uh, a lot older and she started having phone, we started talking more, whereas I got to know your dad a lot, you know, as a kid, because I kind of, I was, I'd hang out with him, and, uh, and uh, you know, it was, it was a blast doing that, and it was cool because both of them I got to know in different ways, and um, and that's, that's cool to hear you, you describe that because I can tell you when you talked about knowing people, that's just, that was amazing to me. Cause when you hung out with him and no matter where he went, they all knew him and, yeah. and whoever he didn't know, he'd meet <laughs> quickly. <laughs> and, um, and it, it's, and getting to know, uh, um, your mom there, um, in, in those last several years as, as she was over 90 at the time that I'm talking about. And, uh, and uh, we had some nice conversations where she filled me in and a lot of information about my dad, which was, <laughs> which was really cool that he kind of forgot to share, you know, so, but uh, awesome stuff. So I, I appreciate you sharing that. And I, I, I think the best, the best thing was after he died, one of his pallbearers, I, I gave all of his pallbearers um, uh, pewter mugs, goblets with his name on it. And I went over to see one gentleman, uh, um, I want to, I think you may have heard of him or met him, uh, Bill Bauer. And um, I, I went to Judge Bauer's house and gave him this and sat me down. He said, Laddie, he said, uh, let me tell you something about Andy. He said, uh, when you look at this banquet that we call life, 
he didn't miss much. <laughs> and that pretty much summed it up. I mean, he definitely, you know, had had his fill. And I, I don't know. I never met anybody who didn't like the guy. And especially young guys. I remember he had a furniture store. And so high school guys worked for him delivering furniture, right? It was, right. it was a fun kind of a job and they could make some, you know, make some money and stick in their pocket. And it was funny. Um, Socrates Campianus, wonderful guy, got married and they were having a group photo of Sock with all of his buddies. And all of them to a guy said, hold it. We can't take the picture. We're missing somebody. Nice. And one of the guys went into the room where they were all dancing, got my dad, took him by the hand, brought him in and said, we can't take the shot without Andy. And that was the thing is young people just gravitated to him. They loved him, male or female. I mean, it, it didn't matter. They just were captivated by that guy. That's cool. Very cool. They, uh, you know, one of the things you talked about a minute ago, because I, and I can tell you, I remember that energy because that was something hanging out with him and going with him different places. I remember that quite a bit. And it, you know, one of the things Ooh. that was neat, you're talking about the things they went through. I mean, because he created a life and career for himself that was beyond all the stuff that was early on in his life and career. And, and your mom did the same thing. I remember her telling me stories about how when he was out of work that she had to, had to, uh, she went to work as a telephone operator as one of the jobs. She, went, she actually went back. Because she worked for the phone company before they married. Wow! And, and she had she had to go back because there was there was nothing they could there was nothing my father could do. Right. He that, was he was just trying to get his name back. How how the uh, how oh let me try that one again. It, how many anniversaries did they end up having? Uh, over fifty. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. They were married. They got married in thirty two. My dad died in. 86. That's awesome. Long time. That's very cool. So let's, what I'd like to do is let's kind of shift to you. We may come back uh, to your parents. Just know, I, I appreciate you sharing. They're wonderful people and uh, I'm glad I got a chance to know them. They, uh, um, and <laughs> I have some funny stories there too, that uh, if we get a chance, I can relate, uh, which is very cool. Um, we've, one of the things that uh, I wanted to do here is talk about, uh, you grew up in the Chicago land area, right? And um, were you around other family members and did you hang out with other Italian Americans or did you have, you know, did, did you have a favorite, you know, I'm going to use that word favorite again. So <laughs> did you have a family member that you did hang out with or did you just, you know, let's kind of talk that direction about. Uh, um, there was a friend of mine. It, it, well, it's, this is, this is funny. Um, there was a friend of mine who, who was Italian. Actually, he isn't. Um, he's Sicilian. Uh, it, it, it's funny. It, Vince's, Vince's dad was Sicilian and, and he would, he would like to say that he was Italian and I would laugh and say, no, actually you're Sicilian. <laughs> and I said, in fact, if you were in Italy, they would tell you you're Sicilian because <laughs> there is a difference between Sicilian and Italians. But no, there was, there was Vince. Um, my family, my, 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 my relatives were here usually on the weekends um when i was a kid so i i mean i re, i remember them it was interesting when i was reading that um my favorite relatives without question were my brother and my sister oh awesome and i know they're not relatives they're my brother and my sister <laughs> uh, but they they're 
you, you need to understand that I was the youngest in an actually rather old family. Um, my parents' ages were the grandparents' age of my friends. Gotcha. You understand? Yes. My, my friends' grandparents were from the era that my parents came from. So like when I was a freshman in college and the question was asked, do you ever think of your parents dying? Everybody said no, but me. Because their parents were in their 40s. My parents were in their 60s. Gotcha. Not that you're going to die, you know, usually if you're going to live longer than that, but still. Um, so the relatives that um, I knew, I never really got that close to that many of them. Um I mean, obviously, I knew everybody, kind of, but again, I'm the I'm the the last kid on the total total. I'm I'm the I'm the baby, right? And and so most of this stuff is sort of like you know zooming past me as I'm as I'm growing up. And but the the two most important family members in my life were was my brother Dick and my sister Joan, without doubt. So kind of did, um, you know with. You know, at some point I'm going to end up, I think I'm starting to notice that I, I really am stuck on the word favorite. So now you got me gun, you got me shy. <laughs> but, uh, um, what, what are the things that, uh, you know, I want to make sure that we talk about here is because, you know, did you have something that you liked to do as a kid? Did you, you know, did you have a, uh, um, a favorite pastime? I mean, what'd you do to spend your, if you had time to spend doing something, What'd you like doing? I mean, did you have music that you liked to listen to then? I mean, what, I mean, and we're talking about, you know, we're, we're talking pre-teenage years now. Yeah, I get, okay. Um, nah, we'd come home from school, we'd go out and play. Um, like you had mentioned in, in your notes in regards to Saturday morning, there was no, on Saturdays you did this. When we came, when I came home, after I came home from school, you went out and played for a while until dinner. Right. Right. And Saturdays, you just went out and played sooner. <laughs> nice. Because you weren't in school. The same, the same with Sunday. Um, in the summertime, we play a lot of baseball. Um, and somewhere, and that's probably where, where my love for the, for the game obviously developed. I mean, anybody who has seen the movie Sandlot. Oh, yeah. I know where they got the idea from. <laughs> I, I mean, if you were if you were of my era or younger, you did that, um, because at the time baseball was still the predominant sport of all the professional sports out there. Um, but mainly, no, we just I just sort of played and got in trouble. <laughs> nice. I I don't I don't know how you could be the one getting in trouble. I don't know. I, got, <laughs> I got in trouble a lot. <laughs> so in fact, in fact, my my brother, if I could interject this story. Yeah. My, my brother told me one day that he had run into a guy I went to grade school with. Um, I think I went to school. I, I don't remember if I went to high school with Billy or not. I don't went to grade school with him. And Dick told me that, that my brother, Dick lived in La Crosse, Wisconsin. And Billy somehow bumped into Dick, saw the name, and he said, by any chance, do you have a brother named David? And Dick <laughs> And Dick said, yeah. And he said, I went to school with him. And then Bill proceeded to tell Dick what we were like. <laughs> so that when Dick saw me and told me this, he said, wow, you guys were all like kind of wild, huh? And I went, 
I don't know. <laughs> okay, I guess, maybe. I have no idea. But, yeah, no, we got in trouble. So you got to explain. You got to give, give me an example of, like, some trouble. <laughs> oh, Lord. Um, you told me to clean this up. Um, <laughs> nothing. I get, it's just I'm basically a punk. I, <laughs> I'm basically a, a, a pain. And, um, and I know, I've always said I would not have wanted to have raised me. Uh, <laughs> nice. That it was usually in like in schools. Uh, I, I I never had a problem talking back to a teacher. Um, I mean, and it would get worse as I got older. Um, and and I want to make sure I, I I we hear you right. You said you never had a problem talking back to a teacher, right? Yeah, I never had a problem telling the teacher <laughs> off. I just nice. I, I just, yeah. And, and, and so because of that, it's like, you know, Mr. Mileto, you need to go see the Dean. Um, and when I, you know, it was, it was more that I was just sort of, yeah, I, it wasn't, I, I, it wasn't, I was doing anything terrible. I was, to me, it was sort of like, if you take the cartoon strip Calvin and Hobbes yes. <laughs> versus like Bart Simpson, I'm more Calvin than Bart. Because Calvin is a lot smarter and devious than Bart is. Nice. Bart just keeps getting himself in trouble because he can't figure it out. Whereas Calvin, you know, it's like he's got this weird imagination going on that's just going to cause all, cause all sorts of havoc. And that was, I'm sort of more in that line. Nice. Very cool. I like that. I can see that too. <laughs> that's the, the imagination leading you down the wrong path. Huh? So, yeah. And, and I, I've always had a big mouth. <laughs> and, it gets you, and it gets you in trouble. Nice. So, so let's. So that's interesting that you're talking about, uh, you know, it, playing ball and and it just kind of playing and and Saturday because like you know I, I'm a young kid in in the early '70s and one of my favorite things, late '60s, early '70s, is a pop up Saturday morning come around. I go watch the cartoons and then I go hang out with my friends. But you, you know, we kind of watched, uh, you know, just uh, watch those different. Uh, TV shows and uh, and then uh, hanging out with each other in the afternoons and so did you have any like shows let you let that you watch because at that time I also was I couldn't wait for the reruns of the monkeys to come on or reruns of, of Star Trek and stuff like that which that's getting a little bit into the sixties yet but what uh, um, yes I mean I I enjoyed watching cartoons like I like Top Cat and stuff like that oh cool but 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 mainly no if it was nice out I was outside playing gotcha. Uh, and I mean, if, if no one was around our house in, in Elmer's had this wonderful brick wall, that was the, the back wall of the house. So yeah, I've got, you've got the windows that are, they're peering into the family room and just like to the right of it is this big brick wall. And if it was nice out and the kids in the neighborhood weren't around. I'd grab my glove and a rubber ball, and I'd have my own little baseball game. Excellent. Up, up against the wall. So, no, I, I, we were always outside. That's cool. We were always outside playing around, snooping around, sneaking around, doing stuff like that. Excellent. Did, so w when you played baseball, is there any position you liked playing when you had a group of guys? No, we used, we used to do it all. Um, I mean, I pitched. Um, I liked playing the outfield cause I had a good arm. Um, I caught a little bit, but not much. So I'm, I'm mainly I pitched and I, and I played the outfield. 
Very cool. So, so now at this time, are you rooting for the White Sox, or is it kind of wide open who you're focused on? Uh, are you? Yeah, I th- I think I've been a White Sox fan probably since I was probably since probably seven eight years old. I like the Yankees. I mean, it was pretty difficult. I know I know in Chicago you you hate them because you know you, they were so good, but I I never thought like that. I mean, I I remember um, we went to a Sox Yankee game one night. Uh, with my my dad and his brother. Now, never forget it. The Yankees' left fielder, his name was Hector Lopez, who made an extraordinary catch. And I stood up and applauded. <laughs> and and Uncle Frank looked at me and he said, David, he's a Yankee. You can't do that. And I went, did you see that catch? Who cares he was a Yankee? That's a great catch. And that's always how I looked at things. When it, when it came to, when it came to, to, to the game, uh, I don't really care what team you're on. If you're really good, I I appreciate that. Um, and that, and so, but no, I was I've been a Sox fan my whole life. I like the Yankees. Um, I kind of like the Milwaukee Braves. Very good. Cool. The, the Hank Aaron, Eddie Matthews era. Uh-huh. Uh, in fact, we went and saw the the two World Series that they were in. Oh my gosh, that's awesome! My dad had gotten tickets, and we went to the '57 and '58. And my mother got my mom and my sister got beer poured on them because they stood up for the seventh inning stretch for the Yankees. <laughs> somebody so, so somebody didn't like the fact they were standing over them. Huh? You got it. <laughs> nice. I, you know, it's funny because I know that uh, um, a, a few years ago I had a chance to come up and visit you with my sons and my, my whole family, and and we had uh, we got to go to the White Sox game, and it was funny because they were, you know, I I grew up in. Uh, kind of around Daytona Beach area, Florida. And, you know, and as a result of that, watching TV as a young kid, I had a chance to become either a Braves fan and or a Cubs fan because WGN for the Cubs and uh, WTBS for the Braves, that's how I watched baseball. And and uh, besides going to some local um, minor league team games. And it's funny because I didn't realize how much it bothered my dad until <laughs> – until when I got older one time and I was watching a Cubs game and he said, Steve, I'm good with the, can we just have a talk? And I said, sure. What's up? And he goes, he goes, I understand. He goes, I I'm good with the Braves. All right. We're, we're okay there, but can you stop watching the Cubs? <laughs> and it, and it's funny. Cause a couple of years ago when we came and visited you, we were at the white Sox playing, they're playing the Texas Rangers. And so, and it's important to know that because the colors are red, white, and blue, like the Cubs, and White Sox are black and white, and we're at we're at uh, the current White Sox park, not Kamitsky. Um, right. And uh, <laughs> sorry, yeah. what's it called? I can't even think what it's. Oh, it's now called Guaranteed Rate Field. Uh, that might lousy design. <laughs> Interesting. So, um, but anyway, the uh, what was funny was uh, there was lots of. Uh, I, I thought, man, look at all this these Texas Ranger fans that are here. It's a pretty wild and when you started looking at the t- shirts they were all anti-cub shirts <laughs> they weren't they weren't rangers fans and they weren't definitely weren't cubs fans they were anti-cub fans it also it all showed like you know the d- demise of different cubs <laughs> that's how i used to get in trouble my father owned a, a building for his furniture store and next to it was a part where Philip 66 chemical company rented from him and the businessmen in the summertime would come next door. There was a joining door and they would come in 
they'd get Dairy Queen from across the street and they watched the Cub afternoon in, in the afternoon. They watched the Cub games and they were all Cub fans except me. <laughs> and I would sit there and raz the holy hell out of them in regards to this. And there was this one man, his name was Chuck Wimmer, looked at me and he said, David, you aren't going to make it past 13. <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so, I appreciate you sharing. That's that's so cool. The uh, um, and since we've kind of touched on this a little bit, I got to ask you about school. Um, okay. So, yeah. and we're focused on elementary years right now. What did you like or not like about school? And uh, and we'll ask some other questions here in just a minute. So, you got to tell me what what you like or not like. I didn't like or dislike. It was school. <laughs> I I can I was I can. This I don't know personally, except from what my sister told me. I was t Joan told me that my sixth grade teacher, uh, Sister Concordia, had told her that I found school boring and it was the reason why I wasn't doing well. In it. She said, he's just gotten bored. She said, it's too easy. And so he's just sort of said, heck with it. Um, in a very negative sense, um, one teacher that... I guess I could save that for that question. I, I'll, I'll, I'll hang on. I'll, okay. I'll save that. Yeah, I'll save that. Um, but yeah, I think school for me was, was just kind of school. Uh, I'd never, it wasn't something that I looked forward to. It wasn't something that I didn't look forward to. If we're just talking about, you know, first grade to eighth grade, if we're just dealing within that, that era, that works. Um, yeah, if we're just doing in that 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 time period, it was you went to school, um, and I was I was better when I was younger, like first, second, third grade kind of thing. I, if I remember correctly, um, I, like I was really good. And but there are photographs in regards to we get back me getting into trouble. Uh, <laughs> of, of there are photographs of me because I went to a Catholic school. We had to wear a uniform. Right. Right. Which mine, I didn't. I mean, it was actually easy because you don't have to figure out what to wear. You just put on your uniform. But the class photograph of me is everybody's got their uniform on. But me, <laughs> I, I, I had a shirt that I really liked. And so that's what I wore because we were getting our picture taken. Nice. And like, David, you weren't supposed to do this. When I got there, the nun looked. She said, David, why aren't you? In? And I said, I like this. <laughs> And this is the beginning of why me and schools didn't don't never got along. <laughs> and it happened the following year where I didn't bring my bow tie. And it was like, David, where's your tie? And I was like, <laughs> I forgot. And so they, they had to give me something. They gave me um, a regular long tie, not, not the bow tie, to, to wear. And so you've got these two photographs of me in first grade and second grade where it's like, why is he – he's out of place. <laughs> and, and that – Stayed that way. I got better in school, like in eighth grade. Eighth grade was fine. And in fact, I got the, the nun that everybody said you shouldn't get because <laughs> she was supposed to be really tough. And Sister Concordia was supposed to be really tough. And I got them both. And I actually liked them both. That's cool. Yeah, I didn't. I the idea. Yeah. But school, grade school to me was just grade school. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's all you went, came home went out and played, did whatever, and you got older. I mean, it was <laughs> – no, I don't think it was any more than that. Gotcha. Except, except I do have a story 
for later. Okay. The uh, so so let me just ask you some like school stuff. So how'd you get to school and get home? Did you did you walk? You know, I was actually I was thinking about that. Usually I walk. Um, I think like first grade or something. Maybe my my mom took me. Um, but mostly I remember I would walk from my house to my friend's house and then we would all walk to school. Um, everything was relatively within walking distance. I have to admit people probably ain't going to like this one, but I do find this thing nowadays of where parents go nuts about the idea of letting their kids walk by themselves. We always did. I mean, that was pretty much common. Um, and it, in fact, there was one that was fun that I thought was funny. Um, I was a Cub Scout for a while until I got kicked out, um, <laughs> that after a meeting, it was like seven, eight o'clock at night. And I was sitting, it was at Hawthorne school across the, not that any of your listeners you know any of this, but I'm, I'm sitting outside of the school where, the, where the, the, the Cub Scout meeting was at and I'm waiting for my brother Dick to pick me up and time is going by and no Dick. And this is, this is to use a Bart Simpson analogy. This is sort of like when Bart's waking, waiting for his father to pick him up from soccer practice. He never shows up and it starts raining. Um, luckily it didn't start raining, but I just said, okay, heck with it. I walked home and this was, I think it was like October. Cause remember it was very dark out and it was dark out like at seven o'clock. So it's telling me it was the fall. And I got, I came in the back door and, Mom looked at me and she said, David, where's Dick? I went, I don't know. And she went, how did you get home? And I said, I walked. <laughs> and she got a little mad. And anybody who knows my mother knows that woman had a temper. Yes, she did. <laughs> and, and Dick got home and it was like, Richard? <laughs> <laughs> nice. But no, no, usually it was, yeah, usually we walked. That's cool. Yeah. The, uh, I mean, even into high school, when I went to high school, I went to high school in Elmhurst for two years. And now we always, if I didn't walk, I was riding a bike. That's right. I remember riding a bike as I got old, as like I was in eighth grade or something. I would ride a bike. That's cool. I was going to, somewhere in there, I was going to ask that question. If you, if it ever went to bike, you know, riding a bike. Yeah, yeah we rode a bike. But mostly it, it was, it was a night, it was actually a very pleasant walk. That's cool. Nice. So, so did you uh, eat lunch at school? Did they, you know. Did you buy your lunch? Did you take your lunch? Did my, you have my a? Mother, my mother made it. I couldn't have asked for better better lunches. Nice. Uh, you know, you, usually it was mom made. Usually my mom made lunch, um, so I had the brown bag with the stuff with the sandwich in it. Um, there might have been times like if she wasn't feeling well, where you could go to the high school and go to their cafeteria, and you could have lunch there. Um, I did that a few times, not much. There was one time where, where my grade school, high school was at across the street, there's a park and in the springtime, sometimes th they would take the classes out to the park and like you, you'd have lunch there and what have you. And there was this one time when we did, and my mom wasn't well my dad made lunches made my lunch two of the biggest tuna fish sandwiches i've ever had in my <laughs> life they were incredible they were so damn good but my dad did not know how to cut a thin slice of bread <laughs> and, I, and i know my brother dick used to used to chuckle about this too because he used to make these great sandwiches <laughs> and i remember i remember opening my bag and taking the sandwich out 
And one of my friends looked at me and said, David, <laughs> you're going to eat all that? And I said, what do you mean eat all that? I got a second. <laughs> That's um, awesome. Okay, I gotta get yeah. you to I got to get you to say something though. Now, so you were this wasn't you know buying a loaf of bread that's already sliced. Is this homemade bread? Oh yeah, yeah. I don't know what it's like to eat stuff from the store. Awesome. And I've had had your cooking. I'd have your your mom's cooking. I, I, I you know so it. And I've had when when your dad made chili, man. The uh, that was awesome stuff. So that's cool. So as I remember the. The aromas of the bread. That's awesome. So that's cool. So he's, so I can just imagine those slices. Oh, they had that. They, one slice had to be at least a half an inch thick. Nice. That's one. So we're dealing with two. Now we're not counting the stuff in between us. <laughs> right. I mean, and, and I'm only like in fifth grade. My mouth isn't even going to get open that big. <laughs> well, the good thing is, is that with that thick of bread slice, you're not going to worry too much about that tuna fish you know, coming through the side of bread or whatever. Definitely didn't have to worry about that at all. <laughs> nice. So, so what I want to, this is awesome. I could talk to you about this for a long time. This is cool stuff. The, uh, um, so what I'd like to do is kind of, let's, let's jump forward just a little bit because, uh, um, we are, we're right there at the end of the fifties into the sixties. And, uh, um, and did you have thoughts at this time about what, what you want to do when you grew up? Cause we're still before high school. Yeah, right. Um, I'm still here. I'm, I'm just dealing with the chronology of this. I was very religious and wanted to be a priest, um, like seriously, uh, up until I was in eighth grade. Um, and it was at that point where I know I had talked to my sister about it. And she was going to Rosary College in River Forest, Illinois, which is now called Dominican University, I think, or something like that. They changed its name for whatever reason. And down the street from Rosary College is the priory for the Dominican priests. And my sister wanted me to meet her philosophy teacher. His name was Father Mike. Nice guy. And so she took me to meet him and he took me around the Priory and he talked to me about becoming a Dominican. And one of the things he had mentioned is you can't do it until you're at least 18 years old. You've got to go through high school because they need to make sure that you're serious about this. And so as we're going through the Priory, we get on the elevator to come down. And one of those important moments in somebody's life is about to take place. And for me, this was huge. And I knew it at the time. I mean, I was only 13, but I knew how big this was. We're on the elevator, the three of us, uh, Father Mike, Joan, and myself. And he's still talking to me about stuff. And I said, Father, I said, um, so when do I study art? And he said, well, first you've got like four years of philosophy and theology. And after you go through all that, then maybe you would be able to start studying art stuff. And my brain went, that's wrong. He's got that backwards. And when I walked out of that elevator, my life was about to change direction dramatically. And 
So at this early age, you were in, already interested in art and, uh, I mean, studying. I had al I always had a pencil in my hand. Um, I didn't know. I mean, I just liked it. Um, I mean, I remember sitting by the radiator back when they had radiators. <laughs> um, and mom had uh, bought an Encyclopedia Britannica. And I would open them up, and I don't know why I would do this. I would just go to maps. So, like, I would draw the state of Nevada. And, and not just the outline of the, of the state, but I would put in cities. I'd put in mountain ranges. I would put all the – there was always a pencil somewhere around in, in my hand. Um, and it was, like I said, when, when, I, when I left Father Mark that, Mike that day, and then the following year, I would be in Florence, Italy for the first time in my life. And walking into the academia where the David is at, everything just profoundly had changed as to what. I, 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 I remember I was, I was studying Italian one day, uh, one time, and I was talking to uh, one of the, Millie, who was in the class too, and she was asking me about my work. And I told her, I said, you need to understand, I never made a conscious decision to do this. And she asked me what I meant by that. And I said, okay, most people who become doctors, lawyers, teachers, policemen, whatever, somewhere in there, they decide that's what they want to do, right? You decided you wanted to get into the educational field. Sorry to say uh, why you would want to do such a thing. That's beyond me, but that's another story. But <laughs> I never made a conscious decision to do what I do. And that's one of the interesting things, looking at, at your questions in regards to education. The mother of my goddaughter called me one day and said, David, she has three children. And her, her son, they were all very young at this time. And her, she said to me, you know, she said, my, my, my son, he just likes to draw and do all this stuff. She said, how do I, what do I do with him? And I said, you don't do anything. And she said, ask me why. And I said, because it's kind of like water. It'll find its path. It'll find its way. If this is something he's going to want to do, he'll find a way to do it. If it's not, he'll put it aside. He'll pick up something else, which is exactly what happened. In my case, I never put it aside because it was always it was always there. This is not something I could get rid of. I can't take my skin off. So it was. It's always it's always been there. That's why if if you talk to people who have known me since like I've been 16, 17 years old, they will tell you they can't imagine me doing anything other than what I do. Whereas there are other people who sit and say, well, no, I can see him doing this. In my case, that's not there. It's just not. Got it. I appreciate you sharing that because it's inter it, it's very interesting insight. And, and, and I, I would add, there is no teacher who could have directed me. <laughs> no, and and I, don't, I don't mean that. I'm not being mean. That, right. that, I, go, I, I remember a high school teacher, sophomore geometry class who told me I wasn't very smart and I wasn't going to make it out of school. I wow. wasn't going to make it out of high school. He said, you're just not that smart of a guy. Wow. And I remember the day that I sat down with 
a gentleman who won the Nobel Prize in physics to discuss my work. And you sit there and you go back and you look at that. And I'm not knocking that teacher, but I'm sitting there going, you can't see that far. It's like the scout who looked at Henry Aaron and said, yeah, but he ain't that good. <laughs> right. Right? Right. Somebody did. Yeah. Somebody passed right. on him. <laughs> there, there was the scout who looked at Hank Aaron and said, you're just not that good of a player. Boy, I think you got that wrong. Not to kill the scout, because it's easy to beat that scout up. It's that there is so much you can't see of what may or may not evolve in, 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 in somebody's life. I mean, the fact that I found a way to continue to do what I have done my whole life, there's no teacher who can tell you how to do that. Right. Good. That's good. That's good stuff. I appreciate you sharing that. I, one of the things I want to do before we get into uh, talking a little bit about art is we're right there at a, at a time frame in history that uh, you were young and experienced. And uh, I mean, it's not like you were on front lines or whatever, but uh, I mean, you're right there and, and you can talk a little bit about it. Um, a president comes to, uh, to office, his name's John F. Kennedy. And uh, at one point he talks about, you know, in 10 years, we're gonna, you know, we wanna be on the moon. We wanna put a man on the moon. And, and then not too long after that, he's murdered. And uh, so can you talk a little bit about the, the moon thing, uh, if there's any memories there, as well as then, do you remember where you were when he was killed? Well, for one, there, everybody who was alive knows where they were. Um, I would, I'd actually predate that okay. and, go to the, and go to the Bay of Pigs because my brother was in the service at the time. Ah, okay. Let's go back there then. Let's go to the Bay of Pigs. And, and I remember the concern with the Bay of Pigs and then the Cuban Missile Crisis. Because I know everybody loves to talk about Kennedy going to Dallas and not coming back. The more powerful and the more gripping one is the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, and, and what it was like, so what, I was like 13, 12, 13 years old. And I remember sitting on the curb with my, my neighbor, Gwen, and we were talking and people at the time were all, the churches were open 24 hours a day. That's if you've seen that on the news, that's real because they, a lot of people really thought this was all about to end. Um, and so there was dealing with that and the absurdity of the duck and cover thing. I never got, <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. If you had I, to get I, never, I never understood what do you think getting under a, a desk is going to do if a, a bomb goes off? <laughs> I somehow don't think that's going to help any, but going from that to Kennedy's death, I was in gym class the word came across that something had happened in Dallas. Um, we were we went back to our homerooms, and they came over the, the the PA and told us that he had been killed, and we were sent home. Um, and then you went home and you watched TV for the next two or three days. Um, what I distinctly noticed um, after Kennedy's death was. So I want to say two years later, right? He was killed in 63. In 1965, 
my father had to go to Washington, D.C. to testify uh, in front of the, uh, I forget what committee, committee it was, uh, on behalf of a friend of his who owned a, uh, a trucking line out of North Carolina. And my dad had never flown. And my mom said, David, we're going to take you out of school. You're going to go with your father to Washington, D.C. I went, oh, cool. And the thing that I noticed that stood out the most after Kennedy's death was it seemed like everything went back to the way it was. Grandfather was back in the White House. Everything seemed old again um, to me. And it was it was interesting how that the the dynamic of what JFK might have been because he's an un, he's an unfinished book. JFK didn't have to deal with what he started the Vietnam War, and he didn't have to really deal with civil rights, as it would get so much worse in the later sixties. He didn't have to deal with sixty seven, sixty eight, sixty nine, seventy. He didn't have to deal with that. Right, because this man's gone. Right. So I just sort of leave the man alone and say, God bless. You know, the tragedy happened. As a president, we'll we'll never know. You know, he's he's the musician that died early, and you sit there and go, what would he be doing today? Kind of thing. You don't you don't know. Um, but I did get a, a sense of difference once he was once he was assassinated. Um, as I got older. And especially then going to school in Dallas was really kind of interesting. The first time I drove past Dealey, Dealey Plaza, um, it was like, whoa, wait a minute. I mean, it was luck luckily it was, it was late in the afternoon and there was nobody on the road. He said, hold it. I got to stop the car. <laughs> right. And cause there were a couple of guys, it was, I wasn't by myself. And I went, it was from that window. Right. And it was like, whoa, time out. And, and it, Talk about hitting home. Um, so it was, I mean, but it, at 13, I, I, I think the Cuban Missile Crisis for me was more powerful in a way than, than Kennedy. Kennedy's was sad and tragic. The Cuban Missile Crisis, there was this in, powerful fear that the world as we know it was about to get obliterated. And when I've, I've document, uh, documentaries that I've seen on it, you know, where they, they said, you know, in a way it was almost dumb luck that it didn't happen. No, the infamous Bobby Kennedy gets two letters <laughs> from Russia and said, or I mean, the president gets two letters from Russia and Bobby says, okay, let's act like we didn't get the second one. <laughs> which is really important in how they made their decision. And so that, that one to me is, is in some ways almost more chilling than, than the tragedy of Dallas. Dallas is a flat out tragedy. Cuban Missile Crisis was scaring the bejesus out of a whole lot of people well, because, of what, because of what might have happened. I mean, I've, I've seen... Uh, the documentary, what's it called? Um, the Fog of War, I think it's called, which is this like two-hour interview of Robert, the former Defense Secretary Robert McNamara, of where he does say, when they left the White House that day, they didn't know if they were coming back. Wow! They just did not know what was what was going to happen. 
Very cool. It's just sad that that happened like that, but I can only imagine, especially if in school you're they're making you practice these duck and covers, and and your mind's telling me, telling you, you know, if this bomb goes off, what the heck? <laughs> it's, I mean, it, I mean, anybody who laughs at it, yeah, it kind of, it's kind of stupid. Well, <laughs> I mean, when you, dear God, when you look at what happened in at the end of World War II, you, you think a school desk is going to help that? Right. right. <laughs> I mean, come on. Who came up with this idea? <laughs> True. <laughs> well, that's so cool that I appreciate you sharing your thoughts about that time frame there before we continue. Because right now we're gonna we're gonna come forward. We're gonna talk a little bit about art, and and we'll come you know in this in the second uh, part to this interview with you. We'll we'll get into the '60s and such, and talk about a few more tragedies and a few more different things going on in the world, and uh, that not everybody was really in tune with all those things going on. So, um, and uh, we'll come back to that. But right now, let's pop forward and let's talk art. When I once asked you about being an artist, and I said something about studying art, you had an interesting comment. <laughs> Can you pick up from there? Do you remember what I'm talking about? I'm trying to think. I, off the top of my head, no. Well, to help you, you, you told me you study tools. Oh, oh it, okay. Well, it, let's see. It may have been. I never studied art. I studied tools. I learned I learned how to use tools. Um, if I had to do it over again, I would not go. I, I would have quit after my sophomore year in college because the next two years were a complete waste because um, um, I was pretty much working on my own. Because uh, for me, it, it was about learning tools part part of the problem with with schools is when you were dealing like with art departments is heads of departments had their own styles and they would try to stick their way of doing things on your head and all i wanted to learn was if i want to do a print how do i do it how do i if i want to do a lithograph how do i do it how do if you if you're going to do a painting? How do you stretch a canvas? How do you prime it? What's the medium for? How do you how do you interact with the oils and the turpentines and the paints? What brushes do you use? I don't care about your aesthetic. I'm nowhere near that. As as my figured human anatomy teacher and painter told me when I was in Texas, it said, the work that you're going to do in school isn't going to be worth the match you're going to use to burn it with. And that's probably right. Because all you're here is you're trying to learn how to see and think in a different way. You're trying to learn how to use these tools. Because to me, I my sister who, who taught for a while used to tell me that she looked at school and said, all they really should do is try to teach you how to think. How do you form the question? How do you learn how to see that? And that's all I was, that's all I ever looked for. I wasn't, I didn't care about anything else. And once I learned how to use those tools, it was like, okay, I'm not a painter. I know I could, I could tell you how, how you go about doing a painting, but I'm not a painter. I printed a lot because I just sort of got a track to do it, but then stopped because I got bored with it. 
So that stopped for me. That's probably might have been the thing I told you. Because I mean, if you study art history, you're studying studying the history of this stuff. But I never, I, I never studied art, and and I don't even know if I'd know how to go about doing it. Gotcha. So, if you had your, because you you talked about not wanting, not really being a painter, do you have a favorite medium? that you use? Cause I know I've seen you use everything from graph computer graphics in the modern era to drawings. Um, no, I, I, yeah, no, I don't, I never models. did. Um, what, what happened for me was I ended up creating my own was I, I, I knew early on that my forte is not with a brush in my hand. I'm good with a pencil to this day. I'm, I'm good with a pencil. I like the sculpt, but it's not the way I think. And it wasn't until I actually, I learned the most the day I walked out of school and left school behind. Uh, it's when I started to develop my own tools that I would use for like to, well, that I would use from the age of 22 for the next 30 years. And once the tool was found, I was then fortunate enough to find my voice because that's the kicker. You can have all the talent in the world. Oh, God's children got that. It's, can you find the voice? And I found the voice one morning in the piazza in Pistoia, Italy. And that's where everything just went click. And I was then able to take those tools and put them to use. But the idea of having a favorite medium, it's the sculptures that you've seen that I did, the, what, I what I was doing at the time fit that. The manuscript that I wrote fit that if i could have told that story if i was a filmmaker i probably i might have been more inclined to take that story and put it on film but instead i ended up using what i had and so i wrote I, I, the manuscript got created the the prince the recent prince that i did the 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 portrait of veronica prince came about because in by sheer accident that original idea was going to be done as a photolithograph. But I happened to be in the Apple store and overheard one of the, 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 the folks who worked there talking to a customer about this thing they called a one-to-one, -one, where for 52 sessions, for an hour a session, you can come in here and we'll work with you. And I went, really? Well, let's see what this thing Photoshop is all about. <laughs> And that's how and that's how I did that. It was just okay. Forget doing the photo litho because I've done you. I know what you are anyway. Let me see what's the big deal with this thing called Photoshop. That's how the the Veronica prints got done in Photoshop. Otherwise, they were gonna. I was gonna use the other thing, but I I don't have a favorite. You know, this isn't Michelangelo was a sculptor. Period. Right. right. That's what. That's the way he thought. And there are other artists who. 
you know, if you're Miles Davis, you played the trumpet, right? You th that's the way you thought. I had to, I had to find my own. I had, I had to, Professor Fritchie, the, a, a dear friend of mine, um, who was the head of the physics department at the University of Chicago, we were having lunch one day and he had said, you had to create your own. You, you had to go to school, learn that stuff, and then walk away from it all, and then go find yours. And that's pretty much what, that's pretty much spot on. Um, so for me, I've never, I've never had a favorite. It's, it's, here's the idea. What's the best way to communicate? And don't limit yourself to an avenue. That's awesome. That's, that's, that's even good, good advice for people. <laughs> that's in a lot of different fields, which is very cool. So, so what I want to do is let's, let's use that now to, because you're working on, you have this incredible work that you, you you're kind of, we're going to do a call for assistance here because um, you'd love somebody to help you with something that you're trying you have this vision for this, this work that you have going right now. And can you share with people what it is and what help you're looking for? Without getting in, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> I, yeah we, we're, I'm gonna keep this real simple. Um, the work needs to be transformed into three into the 3D digital world, and there are obviously a couple couple of ways that it can be done. One of them, from a practical point of view, doesn't make sense, which is, David, go learn how to use the software, and. If I was 25, that's fine. <laughs> Those days are gone and you get to a point as even when I've spoken to some people in schools who teach it will ask, are you ever going to use this software again? And have and recommended if you're not, it would make more sense if you did this. And I agree with the idea if you did this and the doing of this is if you've been working in Maya or 3D Studio Max, what have you, for like 10, 15, 20 years, I can't catch up to your knowledge. You've forgotten more than I would ever be able to know. It would make more sense for me to have you build the objects that need to get rebuilt from analog, if you will, to digital. There are some things that are in there that I could be taught. The, the one thing I think that I, there are three elements to this work. There is the original point of origin, there's the original slide. There is the object, think of a sculptural relief or a architectural structure. And then there is the photographing of those under different lighting conditions. Those three elements need to be woven together to form a whole. One of two things has to, has, that has to be done in one of two ways. I either direct the person doing it or teach me how to do the weaving and I'll do it. And I've got the time. I can work on this stuff 15, 20 hours a day without, without a problem. That's how I created it. So what I have been trying to do over the years is find someone who would either do an internship or who would do some tutoring or collaborating. It's like I contact the, the school near you, SCAD, 
um, in Savannah. And I spoke to the head of their graphics department, gaming department. Yeah, it was gaming. And because I've actually seen a correlation between those that create games. People who create games are essentially creating an illusionary three-dimensional environment. And I sat and looked at that and went, okay, structurally what you're doing is kind of comparable to what I need done. And so I was talking to him and he explained to me why every school I've ever, I've contacted has all said, no, you want to know his answer? Yes. You want to, you want to know? His, okay. Cause it's not complimentary to those of you in the educational field. Let's, let's go for that answer. Right? He said, okay, I'm going to tell you what my job is. He said, my job is this. We need to teach these students how to use this stuff so that when they leave here, they can get a top paying job so they can pay back their student loans. That's it. He said, it's got nothing to do with art stuff. He said, you're coming to us with this art idea. And it's like, who the hell cares about that? Wow. And he said, that's why you're being rebuffed. He said, that's why no matter where you go, the School of the Art Institute of Chicago that I graduated from, it comes to me once a year with their handout looking for money. When I've gone to them looking for help, they close the door. And people want to know why I don't like schools. <laughs> that's only reason why. Uh, so what I have been trying to find over the years is someone who I can work with. Uh, I was fortunate enough a few years ago with a school that <laughs> no longer exists where they were able to do an internship where I was able to get some of the buildings built, but it's just a shell. Nothing's been rendered out. It has to be textured. It has to be completed and then rendered. Um, so I've been trying to find that and have found it to be very, I, I'm not going to say impossible, very, very difficult. So far, every school I've ever tried has said no. They just, they, they won't go there. So we're going to, which, do to, me, which to me doesn't make sense because I think if they were willing to do like an internship kind of thing, the students could really learn a lot. This is hands on practical kind of experience. It reminds me of a friend of mine, God rest his soul, who died a few months ago. Stephen and I grew up together in Elmhurst, and, and we'd been talking about computers since we were like in our mid-20s. Stephen was in the computer field. He started in programming, ended up in Intel and software. Everything I know about com computers, I learned from him. I got the greatest education in the world, and it didn't cost me a damn dime. We just sat and drank beer and talked about computers. <laughs> and he told me, he would tell me when he was at Intel, he said, we're getting these students who have these great degrees from these incredible schools, and they don't know a damn thing. He said, we've got to reteach them. He said, they've got all these cute little theories they're playing with in school that don't translate into how do you make a business work? And that's why I sit and look at my situation and say, boy, when I look at all the hands-on experience they would get from dealing with this, why would you not want to, but they, the guy in Savannah gave me the reason why. And if that's the case, that's the case.
Um, so it, it's just been, you knock on a lot of doors and you get a lot of the same answers. So what we're trying to do, though, is figure out if we got somebody listening to us who might have some help or assistance or might want to. And so, yeah, or, yeah, or has a solution on how to crack the nut. Yeah, there we go. And so with that being said, so listeners, um, you know, you've heard what he's talking about. If you'd like to know more, you think you might uh, be able to reach out to him and, and want to know more where you might be able to try and help. How could they reach out to you, David? Oh, they could contact me at um, dgmaletto at gmail. Maletto is spelled M-I-L-E-T-T-O. Very cool. And I'll have that Gmail address in my show notes. And uh, so what I'd like to do is, and we'll come back some more to that, uh, this big work and what he's got going at the end of each of the, the next uh, couple ep- episodes as we continue with our, uh, our talk about uh, walking through history here. What I'd like to do is I've got two last questions for you, David, and they go like this. The first one is if, and I'm a little scared of your answers here. <laughs> the first one, if you had the chance to talk with 100 brand new teachers, what is one piece of advice you would want to give them? I think when I saw that, I boy, that that's a goodie. You can't throw eggs. <laughs> no, 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 because that's 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 not that's not an answer. Um, the first thing, the I there were two things that that hit me. One was learn how to listen. Part of the problem that I have with schools, that I had with schools, thank God they're in my past. Um, Part of the the problem that I always had with schools when I was in them is they were always trying to tell me, you have to do it this way. And the one thing I've learned is life is not that black and white. I get that. I understand that one and one makes two, but I also learned one day in algebra class that I was really good in. When I finished the test, this was for our final exam. And my mother had said, my sister was going to school in Florence at the time. And my mom said, if you don't get good grades, you can't come with us. I flunked that test. I was the first one done with it. I would have sworn my answers were all right, but they were all wrong because I forgot the plus minus signs. Things aren't, I, I think that, that teachers need to learn how to listen more than talk. And I think they need to learn how to see. Now, the problem that I have when I say that is I'm coming from it from my world, from the world of people in the arts. And the one thing that that I learned about learning how to see is it is very difficult. And it takes years and years. And in fact, you don't ever stop until you're dead. The idea, I, I, I go back to my sophomore geometry teacher who said I was too dumb to get out of high school. Today, people would probably call him all sorts of names and tell he was terrible and he was, and and he would be fired or something. I don't do that. I sit and I look at that guy and I see how much he couldn't see. And it tells me that the most caring and understanding teacher is still going to miss stuff. 
the scout that thought Hank Aaron wasn't that good of a ball player. Somehow you need to allow the student to evolve. And maybe it's, it's like a parent who has to learn that the toughest thing might be is sometimes I'm going to have to let my kid fall and skin his knee. That I can't always catch him. And that from that, he may, that the child may learn how to progress. I, I've always said the reason why I do what I do is it helps me deal with the fact that I exist. I mean, since I've been a kid, since if we go back to my youth, pre-high school, I was always fascinated by this idea that, that we exist. And I would lay in bed at night just trying to focus on that, on, on this idea of existence. And somewhere along the line, when I'm in that elevator coming down and Father Mike is telling me what he's telling me, somewhere my brain knew that he was wrong. What I saw with the kids I grew up with, grade school, high school, into college, most of them weren't, if you will, for lack of a better phrase, as fortunate I was. They didn't know what they wanted to do until probably after they got out of college. I only knew one person from high school who knew exactly what he wanted to do. Everybody else I've ever known is just sort of wandering like what you, because that's what you do and you're struggling. You're trying to figure out how you do this. That's why I sit there and I go, I think sometimes it's more important. You learn how to, it's the old thing about God gave you two ears and one mouth <laughs> that you sit and you look at somebody, Mr. Harold Allen, God bless him. He was a friend of mine for over 20 years. He used to be the, he, he was the head of the uh, photography department to School of the Art Institute of Chicago. When, I, when we became friends, he had retired. Um, and it's interesting. If we had been student teacher, we never would have gotten along. Uh, <laughs> we, I actually know that from conversations with him. And he, he agreed. David, we never would have gotten along. I said, no. What that man, I say, I, I was meeting him one afternoon, and I met him, at, and I came into his classroom, sat in the back, because we were getting together when he was done. And I watched him teach. I would have killed for teachers like this. What he did is he was talking to this one student about their photograph. And he got the student to focus on what they did the best in the photograph, and he eliminated the negative. Because he knew, you don't, you're, you're, really, you're not good over here, but you're really good here. And this is, this, is where, this is what you need to see. When I met with, there was a dear friend of my mother's. Her name was Cornelia Steckel. What a great lady. She was the head of the fashion department. She created the fashion department at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. I remember bringing her some of my prints that I did in Dallas. And I went over and saw her, and Miss Steckel started looking at them. And she started turning the rectangle. She kept turning it and turning it and turning it. And I went, Miss Deckel, I said, no, it, it's supposed to go like this. And she looked at me and she said, why? And well, well, that's the way she said, but do I have to look at it that way? She said, what if we looked at it this way? 
She turned it 90 degrees. I went, huh, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> She's, okay, what if we turn it another 90 degrees? She said, don't limit your eyesight. I, I, think, I think that if, if I go back to like what my sister thought, said about education, that it's about learning how to think. Because when you're in high school and you're in college, it's just about accumulating tools and information that will hopefully help you. you, you you're not, you're not gonna, you're not gonna do any great masterpieces unless you're one of those fortunate few who, at that time in your life, can. But for me, the problem with me with schools always was, David, you do it this way. You're gonna do it the way I told you to do it, or go down the hall. <laughs> and so I was always going down the hall. And I've been going down the hall a lot because, uh, I mean, it just it just never stopped. So I, I think I would I think I would try to tell them, learn how to listen real well and learn how to see what's in front of you and try to look at a page that doesn't have any borders so so that the student can expand more. Because the student in most cases is, is floundering. Right. I mean, if especially grade school, you just want to go screw around. I mean, you're a kid. <laughs> right. So let the kid be the kid. You know, don't 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 make a 10 year old try to be 18. Let him be 10. Um, you know, like I said, I think the other thing is, 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 the, the, is that teachers need to learn how to see. And, and, and like I said, I, that's a real hard process. I mean, I've been working on it my whole life and I still come up short. That's awesome advice. I mean, being able to listen and to, to see the potential in the future for the kid, that's just incredible advice. I appreciate you sharing those thoughts and, and telling us those, sharing us your stories. Cause that's just, it's so powerful because that's, I, I've, it's amazing how many people, when I ask them that question, one of the first things they say is, listen, and you're right on the money. I, I appreciate that. The, uh, the last question I have for you goes like this. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you say if given the chance to say thank you? As I told you, you're going to love this one. <laughs> okay. There was... I, my initial reaction was th there have been none. And I went, no, I'm going to, there's, there's a play on words there that I didn't mean to make, but there was a nun that had a profound impact on, on my, on my education in a very negative way. Uh oh, uh, oh yeah. Um, seventh grade teacher pounded my head against the blackboard because I couldn't figure out fractions to this day. I can't do fractions. I deal in tenths because it's easier. Give me the metric system. <laughs> um, and I, I was in my dad's furniture store. Um, I was long out of school. I was, in, I was in my dad's furniture store. My father went to, I think, I could be wrong. I think he had maybe eight grades of formal education, or it was only three, somewhere around there. Was a mathematical whiz. Um, I used to sit and watch him take just columns and columns of numbers and add them up. And, and one day we were, I was, I was in the store and he was doing 
that. And I looked at him. I said, Dad, come on. That can't possibly. You're making these numbers up, right? <laughs> anyway, he said, take the adding machine and you do it. It took me longer to put in the numbers than the adding machine to come up with the answer than it did for him to answer. And he was right. And so he was working out um, an order for carpeting. And he was writing out the measurements. And he was working on, he started working out, you're dealing with fractions, right? You're not dealing with that whole number all the time. And, and he's got, you know, a quarter of this, eighths this, he's adding them up, doing all this stuff. And I looked at him, I said, Dad, how do you do that? And he looked at me and he said, didn't they teach you this in school? And I went, um, I never got it. And it's because I, my head hurt from getting my head pounded against the blackboard. That's the negative. The positive, again, when it comes to school, I don't have any teachers that I look at and go, wow, terrific. The ones that I met are the people who I've recently mentioned to you. Um, Harold Allen, Cornelius Steckel, and I never called him Harold Allen in my life. I always called him Mr. Allen out of pure respect. Miss um, Cornelius Steckel, Miss Steckel, um, Professor Helmut Fritchie, um, Dr. Robert Wilson, who was the director of the Fermi Lab, and Dr. Leon Letterman, um, who would later become the director of the, the Fermi Lab. Dr. Wilson worked with Fermi on the splitting of the atom. Dr. Uh, Letterman won his Nobel Prize, I believe, in discovering the neutrino. What those people gave to me, um, and I, I've been fortunate with with almost all of them. I was there when Miss Steckel died. Um, I, I was went to see her as often as I could when she was alive to bring her my work, and, and I loved listening to Whenever I was with these people, my big mouth shut up. <laughs> because I was at least smart enough to know that the best thing I could do right now is don't say a word, just listen to what they're about to say. That these people gave so much of their time to me and for, and, and to my work, um, it is just downright humbling. Um, and, and I remember I thought that the night that I left Miss Dr. Letterman's, um, house over by the Fermi Lab. Uh, as I was driving away, the Fermi Lab is out in western, uh, the far west suburbs, I guess, of the Chicagoland area in Batavia, or, or no, Aurora, right? Whichever, I don't know, somewhere it's out there. And there's just big open fields at the time. And I just stopped my car and sat there and and looked around and started and i thought about these people and what they had done the time they had given the knowledge they had given to this punk <laughs> to this to this kid who was always ending up in the principal's office or ending up in trouble somehow some way um I was the kid who was going to end up the bum. I was, I was the guy who wasn't going to make it out of school because I wasn't smart enough. And it wasn't that I was there to talk to them about the weather. They were there to talk to me about my work. That, to me, leaves this big mouth speechless um, to this day. And that was... A long time ago, when when I saw them, Professor Professor Fritchie recently died. 
um, Mr. Allen and Miss Steckle died many years ago. Um, and so I was at least, I was fortunate enough to tell those people what they meant to me. I remember I gave Professor Fritchie um, a print and he wrote to me and back and he said, David, he said, what did I do to deserve this? <laughs> and I wrote back to him with this list <laughs> of, nice. of reasons. Um, and I said, outside of that, I can't think of a th thing. For <laughs> um, and I mean, in regards to teachers, I met Professor Fritchie by pure chance. I had known what the artist had learned about space over the centuries. And I was curious as to what the scientists had learned about time. And so what I did was I called up the University of Chicago to see if I could meet with somebody who taught physics and bring them my work. And there was nobody there that day except one person. And it was the, the gentleman who answered the phone. <laughs> Professor Helmut Fritchie answered the phone. Hello? And I told him my story and he said, sounds interesting. Neat. And he said, I'm leaving town for two weeks. I'll call you when I come back. I got off the phone and went, yeah, right. Ah, a teacher is going to call me back, let alone the head of the physics department at the University of Chicago. <laughs> About two, three weeks later, the phone rang and it was him. Wow. And that was the interesting thing that I found with these people. When I met with Dr. Letterman, to give an insight as to how people think. I had told Dr. Letterman the problem I was having with the art world. And I said, let's, let's use this analogy. The art world is interested in apples and not only apples, but specific kind of apple that they know they understand they get. I said, I, I, I make oranges. I said, they don't want a damn thing to do with oranges because they don't get oranges. They get apples and they get their kind of apple. Right. And he said to me, don't they understand that they can learn from your orange? And there, sir, Mr. Educator, is the problem in the field of Professor Fritchie, Dr. Letterman, Dr. Wilson, had a much wider spectrum to work from. It wasn't narrow and they didn't shut it down. It was, that's an interesting idea. Can I learn anything from it? No, I can't. Okay, throw it out. Because that's what I do. If the idea doesn't work, you tried it, didn't work, garbage. Go to the next. And that's that's the extraordinary thing with them was that they looked at me and said, I think there's something here that I can learn from and I'll help you with it. Nice. And, and like I said, I was fortunate enough to be able to say thanks in the best way I could with all of them. David, thank you so much for talking with me today. You know, you've made it over the years. I mean, you don't know how impactful, um, my hanging out with you, letting me hang out with you, getting to know you, hanging out in the car, hearing your stories, even when you were giving me sarcasm back. <laughs> you inspired me all the, all the time. And I meant what I said in the beginning. You're inspiring cook, artist, and uh, glad that uh, you're my uncle. 
And I'm looking forward to the next part of this as we pop up into the uh, into the 60s and uh, get into another part of your your life. And I greatly appreciate you uh, sharing and talking with us today. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends. Hey, have you got some thoughts, questions, or ideas? I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to me through my email at stephenmiletto at gmail.com. Stephen spelled with a V, and Mileto is M-I-L-E-T-T-O. And that's at gmail.com. Or if you're in the United States or Canada, you can call my Google Voice number at 478-353-5471. Love to hear from you. Thanks. Take care now.